about refuge. It's a, a concept that I've been reflecting on a lot lately. I'd just like to go into that a little bit and see what we can bring out around that, around refuge. Two or three weeks ago, um, just before I was going to go to a sitting where I'm living now in Seattle, I received an email from a friend, a friend who's actually one of the Dharma teachers in our network. And this is what the email said. After a week retreat, this is after he was sitting with a teacher for a week, not teaching but sitting, on the last night, uh, two other friends asked myself and my wife to go out to dinner and we were in a big car accident on the freeway. We are all okay aside from some minor injuries and general physical trauma. It was the worst accident I have ever been in, careening across the freeway and back in traffic, culminating with 360 degree spin out and crashing into the center divide. Practice, as always, served us well. The ambulance people couldn't believe how low our heart rates and blood pressure were. So that's what he wrote. And I noticed how my heart rate went up while I was reading it because I often have the impression that after sitting on a retreat or doing, uh, you know, engaging in some kind of spiritual practice, we receive great merit for our work here. So there's a way that we're protected. You know, this is some belief that I carry with me. But again, receiving this email shattered that one too, you know, that we never know. We never know when that moment's going to come when something happens and life goes into chaos in some way. The piece that I was really struck by was the line where he said, practice once again served us well. Because I hear that. You know, I hear people say that again and again. The circles that I travel in, the friends that I travel with, say, thank goodness for the Dharma. Thank goodness for the Dharma. It's just something, it's so often repeated. And what is that? What happens for us that we feel that the Dharma, these teachings, the practices that we're engaged in, are so priceless to us. They're such a gift and so valuable for us that somehow the practice themselves, the Dharma itself and the practices that we're engaged in are the protection. It's like even though at times life can seem like it's spinning out of control, something gives us a sense of protection as we go deeper into the teachings and deeper into the practices, we can feel more and more like this protection is with us all the time. But it isn't necessarily a protection from the conditions of life. It doesn't mean that as we go further into the Dharma and understand the teachings more and practice well, that then all of a sudden everything starts getting rosy in our life. You know, the sun shines more, people like us more, there's more, you know, loving relationships, less conflict, and, you know, people don't die. And, you know, <laughs> you know, it, you know sometimes we can have that, that fantasy, you know, that as we practice more, that somehow it's like a magic wand, and we can then start to... Um, control, even though we're not controlling, somehow our aura or our vibrations or the, the energy of our being starts to push everything unpleasant away, and more and more we experience the you know, life of, of bliss. But it isn't that kind of protection. It isn't that things don't happen anymore, they keep happening to us. It's a different kind of protection, and, it, and that's what I've called the refuge finding a place of refuge through the teachings. I looked up the word refuge in the dictionary, and the definition was that place of protection, 
from danger or harm. Finding some kind of protection. And it seems that the teachings, the teachings, the practices help us locate something. And we can't even say it's a place. We can't say it's a thing. But because language is so limited, there's, we don't have the words to say what it, what it is that actually starts to happen. But we start to have some kind of experience or some kind of sense that things are okay that things are okay. And that's my sense of what my friend meant when he said, practice once again served us well. Because even in the midst of something so terrifying, their heart rates and their blood pressure was still relatively low, which means the anxiety didn't, didn't increase so tremendously. Something else was operating there. What happens that we lose connection with this refuge, this sense that things are okay? And it's sometimes more than a sense. As we deepen into it, we actually can almost feel the, the, the location of it, as if we are living in it, or, or some, it's some sense of our home that we are in or that we live in. But how do we lose touch with this? I know for myself, and I know for a lot of people, uh, we come to the practice, we come to the teachings because our lives are in such chaos. We're experiencing a great deal of suffering, a great deal of complexity in our lives, and we're looking for some way out of that. And for me, when I was about old was I, about 26 or 27 years old, my life was in that very chaotic state, inner and outer. And I was on the verge of having what I think was a nervous breakdown. I mean, we use that word nervous breakdown. But (laughs) just not being able to cope with life any, any longer. And so needing some help, needing, needing some refuge, some source of uh, a protection. And so I found somebody who uh, had been involved with meditation, and she directed me to uh, meditation classes, and I started meditating. And through the meditation, I started to feel more calm, feel more sense of peace in myself rather quickly, you know, I think my memory is really in the first week. Uh, it wasn't Vipassana I was practicing them, then, it was TM. And just through the repetition of the mantra, uh, not being so caught up and engaged in all of my crazy thoughts, but finding some way to move those thoughts out of consciousness and bring something else that was much more wholesome in the front of consciousness, in this case a mantra, and really begin to clear out my mind. And as I began clearing some of the chaos, I felt much more peaceful and better in myself. And this beginning to feel more peaceful starts to make contact with that, what I'm calling the place of refuge, place of some contentment, some ease. So what happens is that we get so caught up in the complexities of our own mind. Life just seems to come at us from so many different directions that if we don't have the skills and the resources, it's very difficult to sort things out. I wanted to read something from a teacher who is living on the West Coast. His name is A.H. Almas, or sometimes he's called Hamid. He's uh, the founder of the uh, Ridwan School, or the Diamond Heart Approach School, on the West Coast. This is from his book, Facets of Unity. He He says, Our minds have become so complex in our attempt to deal with our ignorance and distrust. 
Our minds are split into so many fragments that are constantly fighting with reality and with each other. Because our minds are so complicated and disharmonious, it takes a lot of work, intelligence, and energy to penetrate the thick complexity and darkness to discover what the actual truth of reality is. Reality itself is very simple and straightforward, but we can't see that simplicity. We can't see the normality of our natural state. We can't see the normality of our natural state. It's like the complexity of our thoughts create this barrier, and sometimes a thick wall, or uh, sometimes the metaphor is used of a thick veil that blinds us from the simplicity of our natural state. And we can see this. This is when we come to a retreat and we remove all of the usual distractions and responsibilities and activities, and we just sit here, and we don't actually have a lot of things to deal with. I mean, we really don't have to do much of anything. And yet, because of that, it allows us to see how the mind, our mind, keeps finding something to make a problem out of or to get involved with or to figure out or to try to understand or um, make something out of something. You know, like, for instance, uh, if we go into the uh, dining room to eat our meal, you know, we talked about the eating meditation. You need to simply take the food to begin to chew it and to taste it and swallow it, feel, be in touch with our bodies, notice when we're hungry and when we're not hungry any longer, really being very much connected with the process and then when we're finished, put the food back. But goodness knows it's never that simple. And depending on if somebody has a lot of difficulties in relationship to food, anyhow, it becomes so complicated. So complicated. Well, maybe I'm eating too much. Um, maybe I, you know, maybe I'm, I shouldn't be eating this kind of food. I'm really bad when I take this much food. You know, um, I rush to the, to the food line. I really should stand at the back of the food line. I have too much greed. Oh, I'm so greedy. I have so much craving in my mind. You know, it's like the commentary that keeps going on that really doesn't allow us just to eat, <laughs> just to taste, you know, just to enjoy if, if, we, if enjoyment arises, you know, just to be with the simplicity of that experience. It's such a strong commentary that goes on, goes on, and goes on. Just sitting. Just sitting, you know, sometimes I, I often reflect on the fact that we come to meditation retreat and what we do is we sit, we walk, we eat, we do a little bit of work, we go to sleep, we brush our teeth, and that's all we're really doing here. <laughs> but it, it's so difficult for us to be so simple. We lose connection with that simplicity, with our normality. I love how Hamid says, with, we lose connection with our, the normality of our natural state. And so the meditation is providing tools for us to sense that again, to taste that again. What's it like when we are this simple? when we're not engaged with the usual thought patterns that make us crazy <laughs> and everybody else around us crazy. But we quiet that down a bit and then begin to taste, begin to feel, begin to uh, touch aspects of life, the life movement that we have forgotten or we haven't had access to. Today was a really wonderful day for weather. You know? And uh, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, in the Midwest, not so far away from here. <laughs> and uh, I haven't lived there for about um, 30 years. 
I haven't lived in this part of the country or in, or in the Midwest. And I really miss this kind of weather. You know, I've been living in California and San Francisco. Uh, it's not a lot of weather, except if you live in San Francisco, the fog comes in. You see a lot of fog, but not a lot of other kind of weather, particularly most of the year. And today, it was, there, was the, there was such a richness in, in the nature and weather, you know, beginning with those one, the wonderful storm that we had this morning, you know, and people were out uh, walking out there watching the storm come in, you know, like really wa eyes wide open, watching the clouds come closer and closer just as the raindrops started to fall before people started to scatter. And then inside in those cracks of lightning, and there's no way not to be engaged with that when you're on retreat. <laughs> Maybe if we're, you know, stuck in an office building or something, you know, or, you know, stuck in a uh, glued to the TV or in a book or something. But here we are, you know, it's so much part of our retreat. It's so much part of the day, you know, just that real engagement and participation with that aliveness of nature. And it was so cute, there was one woman in one of the groups who commented that when she was sitting at breakfast, there was, you know, the long line of people, and people are eating very mindfully and concentrating, and then the crack came. And she said she, she, she noticed how everybody jumped. <laughs> it was like this line of people <laughs> just jumping up and then down, you know. Everybody being, everybody feeling the connection in that moment, you know, that collective harmony. Where is the sense of, where is the separation in that moment? Right in that moment of the crack of lightning. Is there any separation? Is there me and it and you and I and my food and me sitting here? It was just what it is. Just what it is. You know, that kind of connection. And... And sometimes it takes that kind of uh, jolt or some kind of um, <laughs> something to wake us up, whatever it is, and then we're right in it. And there's no opportunity for the mind to begin chattering about it or thinking about it in it while we're in it. It's just the purity of the moment. And for lightning, sometimes uh, it just is an instant unfortunately, <laughs> because that is such a, an alive experience when the mind isn't moving all over the place into the past and the future and commenting and evaluating, but just purely there, purely connected. And so we had that opportunity this morning with the wildness of the, of the, of the storm. And then it changed, and it changed into the sunshine wonderful clear air, the air that was cleared out by the storm, and the sun shining, the birds singing, and the wind blowing. Wonderful wind today, you know? And walking outside, because the mind may be somewhat clear and we have access to the elements, the elemental nature, you know, we hear the wind, we hear the wind blowing. And hear the trees rustling, and hear the leaves rustling. And there's such a deep sense of connection with all of that. You know, the sense of self in its usual worries and its usual troubles, not so engaged. It's the opportunity to let that be more quiet, let that be silent, and be more fully and wholeheartedly with that totality of that experience, the experience of the wind, the experience of the sun, and the green. One woman was talking about everything was so green, you know? It's like the eyes come alive and, and the perception starts to shift. It's more access to the, you might say, the refined states of existence that we so easily miss. And so we have the opportunity here, which may uh, 
increase some motivation for us when we leave to really understand that we have to find ways to let go of the mind. Because the mind becomes such a barrier for us at times. The mind can get so dense. It gets so we get so thick. <laughs> and through that we become divided and fragmented because we uh, we start to believe so so much in the reality of our own minds that we miss the reality that's right in front of us. We're not able to have contact with the elements the way we are here because the mind seems so real. It engages, engages us so totally when we don't have that recognition, we don't have that awareness. So one of the hopes is that when we come to a retreat, when, one of the hopes for me is that when people come to a retreat that they, they'll have this taste you know, whether it's somebody who's new or somebody's been practicing a while, that that taste of that freedom, the taste of that fluidity, the taste of, of, of life when the self, when the sense of myself or yourself isn't imposing so, so heavily in a present moment reality or, or present moment experience. Because if you have this taste as one of my teachers said in India, once you drink that wine, <laughs> you'll, you'll never want any other low-grade, you'll never want the low-grade wine again. You know, that's the only, he said, it's the only wine you'll want to get drunk on. <laughs> because that, that kind of intoxication is so divine. So we don't compromise so much anymore. We don't settle so much anymore. We want that. And so the refuge, this, sometimes this becomes a memory for us, this kind of experience. But sometimes we start to feel more and more within our own being that sense of space or that sense of freedom, that sense of connection with life, with things. And that becomes more accessible to us, and we can return back to that. We can live from that place more of the time. So the experiences themselves become reinforcements for us to have more faith in the truth of that refuge, in the truth of those experiences, in the truth of that possibility. And as the, the experiences continue, the faith, the faith itself deepens. And then we can draw on the faith when we don't have uh, so much access to the experiences, and one feeds on the other. And the refuge starts to build, starts to develop. When people come to Buddhist practice, The meditation techniques are actually only one very small part of the Buddhist teachings. The tools and the techniques of meditation, it's one aspect. But then there's all the rest, the Dharma, the teachings themselves, and all that that's pointed to. When people come to the Buddhist teachings, one of the one of the practices that are given is to take refuge in what's called the Three Jewels. And taking refuge in the Three Jewels is a way to begin to make access to the deeper refuge that I've been talking about. And so one of the things that designates somebody as a Buddhist, particularly in the Asian cultures, is somebody who takes refuge in the Three Jewels. So the three jewels are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And this is traditionally where people begin, taking refuge in these things. And they're called refuges because 
of their matchless purity, the purity of the Buddha, the purity of the Dharma, the purity of the Sangha. For Buddhists, this is these three jewels are the most precious objects in the world. There's no confusion about what to take refuge in. <laughs> not taking refuge in things, not taking refuge in food or drugs or alcohol or um, cigarettes or possessions, cars, beautiful things in, in relationships and people, in situations. Not to get to not to get confused about where to take refuge, but taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. An acceptance of these three jewels become guides of one's life and thought. They become the guides. And the Buddha, it's not the Buddha necessarily as the man, as the historical man. But the word Buddha means knower or the awakened one. That's what the word Buddha means. There's this lovely story that you may have heard. It is said that soon after his enlightenment, the Buddha passed a man on the road who was struck by the extraordinary radiance and peacefulness of his presence. The man stopped and asked, my friend, what are you? Are you a celestial being or are you a god? No, said the Buddha. Well, then are you some kind of magician or a wizard? Again, the Buddha answered, no. Are you a man? No. Well, my friend, what are you then? And the Buddha replied, I am awake. I am awake. That's what a Buddha is. And that's why the Buddha is named Buddha, because this man attained perfect wisdom. He attained what is now called Buddha nature. And so we can take refuge in the fact that each of us have this Buddha nature within our own being. That as a human being, each of us has Buddha nature. And that's one of the jewels that we can take refuge in. And as I said before, there's experiences that start to give us more and more evidence of the truth of that. As we feel the freedom, as we feel the liberation, as we feel the space within our own being, we start to taste that. We start to know that Buddha nature within our own mind, within our own being. The Dharma, the jewel of the Dharma. The Dharma means teaching. And in the Buddhist uh, world, it means the teachings of liberation as discovered and realized and proclaimed by the Buddha. We call it the Buddha Dharma. And we can take refuge in these teachings. We can fall back on them. We can rely on them. We can go to them when we get lost, when we get confused when we lose our way. The teachings, primarily of the Four Noble Truths, they point us back on the path, on the way. So we can take refuge in the Dharma. We can take refuge in the Sangha. Sangha means, Sangha is a Pali word, it means community. And traditionally, in the Buddhist world, it means the monastic community of monks and nuns that, the, that, that was founded by the Buddha, the monastic sangha. Because these are people who have taken refuge and live with and live by the Buddha, the Dharma, and the sangha. But now the sangha is any and all men and women who take refuge in these three jewels has a broader meaning now. So we can begin with taking refuge in these jewels. Oftentimes on retreats, many traditional retreats and uh, uh, 
spending time with teachers, Asian teachers, they'll chant these three jewels in Pali. And you've probably heard this. Just, just um, say the words of that chant. Budang saranam gachami, dhammang saranam gachami, sangang saranam gachami. You hear this again and again in the Asian world, in the Bud- Asian Buddhist worlds. Budang saranam gachami, dhammang saranam gachami, sangang saranam gachami. And it means, I go for refuge in the, to the Buddha. I go for refuge to the Dharma. I go for refuge to the Sangha. And so for some people, really following this way, following this path, begins to uh, open one up to that place of protection, where the mind can begin to let go, let go of its usual habits and ways of feeling so caught up in, in its complexities, and use this, this particular way to let go into the refuge. And as we practice and practice over time, we find that the, it's not so, the three jewels are not so much something outside of ourselves or some kind of form or ritual that we're practicing, but the Buddha becomes our own mind. We sense that, we know that. The Dharma becomes the nature of things that we are engaged with all the time. The nature the unfolding, the moment-to-moment. And the Sangha becomes the community of every element of life, the interconnected nature of all things. So it's not something outside of ourselves anymore, but it becomes more and more integrated into the wholeness of our being. And we start to sink into that, we start to deepen into that. We know it. It begins to clear our vision, it clears our mind, and it becomes a place of refuge that we can rest back into again and again. And, and the gaps of feeling like or, or having the sense of being away from that start to decrease. decrease. So there do, at times doesn't even seem like there are many gaps. It's something happens but that sense of something else flowing through the experience, some kind of protection or some kind of ground, some kind of uh, uh, faith, seems to be running through the experience at the same time. Faith can almost be another word for this refuge. We can start to, and the words will be different for different people, we can start to have a sense of faith that everything's okay. A basic, having a basic faith in life. Basic faith or basic trust, sometimes they're used interchangeably. It essentially means there's the trust that life is manageable or that life is workable. That it really is going to work out. Things really are going to be okay. This is from uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was the founder of the Naropa Institute in Boulder in the 70s, and a Tibetan uh, Buddhist master who died a number of years ago, about six, seven, ten years ago, don't know. The lion's roar, and this is the same kind of thing, is making contact with that elemental nature or our, or our true nature. The lion's roar is the fearless proclamation that any state of mind, including the emotions, is a workable situation, a reminder in the practice of meditation. We realize that chaotic situations must not be rejected, nor must we regard them as regressive as a return to confusion, we must respect whatever happens to our state of mind. Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. (laughs) Now, how's that for a radical frame of reference? Chaos should be regarded as extremely good news. The The first time I heard that, I love that. 
it gives, it just really does give me much more faith in the unfolding of things. That even chaos can be seen as good news. That means there's a basic trust. There's a basic trust that runs through even that experience that it's going to be workable, that it's going to be manageable. Today there was a yogi who came to see me and he had a very interesting question. He said, I have this question about fear and faith, fear and faith, that I have this experience of fear. I'm starting to get more in touch with that in a real way, in a very tangible way. But then there's faith. And how do I get from the fear to the faith? How do I actually make that leap? How do I, how do I drop into that? And I said to him that it's very important to see that the fear and the faith are not separate. Because what the mind does, what our mind does, is it separates things. It sorts things out, categorizes things. It puts this here, this here, that there, and that there. And then somehow the mind tries to link them all back together. But that never works. (laughs) We're never going to get to faith that way. What has to happen, as Christopher has been talking too, we have to see in a completely radical way. We see that that the fear and the faith aren't separate, but the faith is running through the fear. That the faith is running through everything. It's like a stream. It's like, it's like, it's like that undercurrent that never disappears, that never leaves. And to start to sense into that even through the talking about it, even through just that shift of perception, the shift of frame of reference, just to sense the faith that's running through all experience. And in this case, the faith that that fear is manageable, that that fear is workable, and that whatever is being revealed or whatever is being shown to us in that fear is going to wake us up to something if we keep our mind open, we keep our heart open, if we listen to the Dharma. If we don't just get locked into that fear and identify with that fear and uh, uh, forget the wonderful teachings, the wonderful tools and the resources that we have. And sometimes we may forget. Certainly we may forget momentarily or we may forget for an hour. We may forget for a few months. (laughs) But it doesn't mean that the Dharma has gone anywhere. (laughs) You know, hopefully that at some point we'll wake back up and we'll say, yes, I have the Dharma in my life. I have the teachings in my life. And then we can make contact again in some way. We, we can make, make some, take some action, make some effort to make contact with the Dharma again to help us remember that faith is running through, that there's nothing that is separate, that the concept or the idea, idea of duality is just what the mind makes up. But actually, there's nothing that's separate. Everything is connected. Everything is unified. Our Dharma practice helps us heal this duality, the way that the mind creates this duality. It helps us to understand how we create these dualistic perceptions. You know, we can look at our own mind and we start to see how the mind is creating something that isn't true. I mean, again and again, when a thought arises and we can look at the thought and we say, oh, yeah, that's just that. That's just a pattern of thought running through. It really isn't me. It doesn't have that much to do with me in this moment. And then letting go of that thought and resting back into the stillness, into the silence, whether it's a thought of fear or a thought of future or a thought of a, a past or a thought of somebody here on the retreat. All right, I don't need to engage in that right now. And then just settling back into the silence again, into one breath, one half breath, one step coming back into a place of refuge, protection. So sometimes we might use the word faith for that uh, sense of, of refuge. 
Sometimes we might use the word love, dropping into love when the mind isn't so active, when the mind isn't so uh, constricted and dense, and we can let go and open out a little more. And something opens up in us, and we, we feel more sense of connection, and uh, we feel some happiness and joy starting to bubble up, even sometimes in the middle of pain. So many people have said that. I can really see now that pain isn't what I thought it was, that actually there's even something interesting and joyful about it. You know? There's space. We might say that that's love, the love that comes from uh, knowing our connection with all things, knowing that we're not separate from all things. That's really love, true love. True love is, is, is that experience of deep friendship. I love that, that, that particular definition of love, loving kindness or metta, deep friendship, deep connection with all things. That means deep connection, too, with my own mind, with my own body, with all of my own inner movements of, of heart, mind, body, as well as all the elements all around other people and, and the, the nature and, and all experiences of life. That's love, having that deep friendship. And it's, we often think that love is some kind of feeling. That's how we know whether we're feeling love, and that's how we know whether the heart is open, because a certain feeling comes along with it. And that's such a, a, a distraction, really, from guiding us to the true love. Because love isn't necessarily a feeling. It can be uh, experiences of feeling at times. But love is really more the knowing. It's the knowing. The knowing that lets us feel our place in the nature of things. The knowing of our connection with all things. Knowing that everything in life is friendly, even if it's ugly and dangerous and, 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 and painful, because there's that faith running through, or there's that trust running through, that there's that sense that even though this seems so awful, there's something right about it. There's something okay about it. There's something that's going to be revealed in this. I don't know what it is right now, but something's going to wake up in this. Trusting in that. Usually love is so dualistic. It really has to do with myself and other. It has so much to do with my own self-interest and how I want things to be and how I want the world to be. Love gets localized in one person or one place or at a certain time. And that's restricting love, which is, again, just the mind, because real love cannot be restricted. But we have the sense of restricting love. And then, it's, then in, in when we do that, we cease to feel, we cease to know its inherent quality in all existence. We interfere, we interrupt that love that flows through everything without distinction. And when we restrict love or localize it in one thing, then we believe it is dependent on the conditions. We believe that it has to do with this person or that thing or that situation. We believe in that. And that separates us, that fragments us from, from the love that's running through all of existence. Hamid, this, uh, H, who I read from, A.H. Almas, he says, love is the heart of existence. It's the heart of existence, the pulsing of existence. This is what might be available to us as we start to quiet down. Because when we're very much locked into 
believing our ideas and our opinions and our uh, fantasies and our imaginations and our views. When we get so caught in that, we, we cut ourselves off from the stream of nature, from the stream of our true nature. And so the practice of meditation is the possibility that we can start to tap into that undercurrent, that, that river that's flowing through all of existence. We quiet down. We start to listen. We might listen to a quieter or more subtle voice within our own being that usually gets overpowered by the the noisy voices in our own mind. And there's this little voice, (laughs) this little quiet, tender voice that's trying to be heard, but it's, it's not going to come up into the formation of the ego in the way the ego usually takes shape. Just this little quiet voice that's saying, it's okay. (laughs) Just calm down. Just (laughs) let go. Be quiet. Trust into things. And so we get really quiet. We start to hear the rumblings of that wisdom voice of the deeper wisdom that sometimes takes the form, takes the shape of of words and language and sentences. It's how we can access it sometimes. So we get very quiet and we start to listen. And this listening is a returning to the silence, returning to a silence that's always been there. A silence that's not necessarily dependent on an outer silence. The outer conditions can be noisy and wild and and chaotic. We begin to touch some inner silence that even can be silent even if the mind is still noisy and making a lot of of, uh, trouble. But there's something that doesn't go away in that. So we listen, and in listening, we let go of our egoic tendencies, our prejudices, our beliefs, distorted ideas about things. Let the mind quiet down. And let the heart respond instead of the mind responding all the time. How is the heart going to respond? What does it mean when the heart starts to respond? We might say, listening for what is hidden. Listening for what is hidden. The great poet Tagore says, life is the ever-changing foam that floats upon a sea of silence. Life is the ever-changing foam that floats upon a sea of silence. There's so much waiting for us as we begin to listen, as we begin to quiet the mind and touch something that is rarely accessible for us. This is from Rumi. Beauty surrounds us, but usually we need to be walking in a garden to know it. All things we do are mediums that hide and show what's hidden. Study them and enjoy this being washed with a secret we sometimes know and then not. Study them. That's what we're doing here. (laughs) Pay attention. Study these things that show and hide what's hidden. Study them and enjoy this being washed with a secret we sometimes know and then not. 
And I'll end with this one from Rumi. Because he says, don't worry about saving these songs. So in some ways, this is a song of the Dharma. You know, it's a song to help us wake up, to help us remember the truth, to help us normalize into our true nature once again. But he says, don't worry about saving these songs. And if one of our instruments breaks, it doesn't matter. We have fallen into the place where everything is music. The strumming and the flute notes rise into the atmosphere, and even if the whole world's harp should burn up, there will still be hidden instruments playing. Let's sit together for a few minutes. May all beings live with wisdom. May all beings live with compassion. May all beings find their true refuge. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.